Welcome to the third of our Christmas BMJ 2016 podcasts. This time we'll be hearing about truth, post-truth and nothing like the truth. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. In previous podcasts, we've discussed morality with the philosopher A.C. Grayling and found out about the science of compassion. This time, we're talking about knowledge. Has the public really had enough of experts? We already have to fight to get people to be politically brave and give a lead on difficult issues and actually take the time to understand the evidence rather than just provide a knee-jerk response. And why you have to be careful when talking caviar and stats. If I study people who became uh, became millionaires, was it because they ate caviar? And that's a very difficult question to answer because the statistics are, um, we don't have the methodology to answer to answer those questions without making very strong assumptions. Firstly, in response to the turmoil of 2016, with political campaigns being run on and won on misinformation, many commentators are despairing that we've become a post-truth society. But Tracy Brown, director of Sense About Science, the charity set up to champion evidence, is a bit less pessimistic. Um, So, if we start with Michael Gove, he says, people in this country have had enough of experts. Was he right? Well, I think there are two parts to this. Um, On the one hand, there was a kind of frustration that um, all sorts of of expert views were being wheeled into what was ultimately a very politicised debate. And I don't think, though, that we should put too much store by it. I don't think that um, there was a pronouncement on what the public's view of expertise and the evidence that experts wield. Uh, We didn't get that pronouncement. And so it would be rash to make the assumption that that was a a voice of of public uh, view. Mm. I mean, he was talking from a very political position there. He was in favour of uh, Brexit. Uh, Lots of experts were saying, hold on a second, Um, if you look at the evidence, this might not be as straightforward as you say. So, you know, it was a very politicised debate he was entering. And um, it seems to me that when people talk about this post-truth society, uh, they are mainly talking about the political realm. I think one of the frustrations um, is that people are looking to make a judgment about what the public thinks about expertise and evidence based on some of the most frenzied political debates uh, that we've seen in this country in recent years. And they're looking to do the same thing uh, in other parts of Europe. We're seeing similar uh, debates about the rise of Marine Le Pen and the way that some public issues are being discussed there. And we're seeing the same discussion in the U.S. And it would be a mistake to, I think, to look at uh, what the public's expectations are of how uh, policies are made and what they're based on and the expertise and the evidence that are used to, to, to write those policies. It would be a mistake to imagine that the way that people respond to a political debate uh, gives you an indication of what those expectations are. Hmm. Um, and if we talk about sort of public opinion there, um, 
if 2016 has taught us anything, it's that, that people live in bubbles or perhaps in, in stratas. And um, people's views can be very much influenced by, by people around them and not so much by, you know, potentially experts, potentially people who have a, a different point of view. Um, and that's something that you bring up in your article, the need for experts to actually engage more widely than, than with their peer group. Well, I think one, a really useful way of understanding what we've just seen is that on the one hand, we've just had a year in which the public's quest for truthfulness on a whole range of issues has been at the forefront of the news, not least, for example, a 27-year quest to get the truth uh, about what happened in the Hillsborough tragedy, for example. There are a number of other examples I could point to. I could point to some in the US, for example, the Baltimore Police Department mm. has finally had to reveal um, a lot more information about uh, its stop-and-search policies. So there, there is obviously an interest in people being held to account in public life. What happened in the discussions around the referendum and the recent um, election in the US is that, is that people, I think, quite rightly, there was an element of saying, look, it's no good just keep wielding reports at me or stating uh, you know, that uh, this is what the economic effects are going to be. I need someone to engage with where I'm at here. And that's what I think we saw. And it does really speak to the fact that, you know, one of the really interesting comments was after the referendum, um, there were a number of articles where people had searched through their Twitter feed and Facebook feeds, trying to find pictures of people celebrating um, this result, people who had voted for, for Brexit. And they could find none because the filter on the, uh, uh, you know, the algorithm that determined what it is they're interested in, uh, having been uh, remain supporters, those people, meant that you know, nothing was coming their way that showed an opposite point of view. Yeah. So interesting issue there about the kind of media that we surround ourselves with and the feedback mechanisms, the sort of self-congratulatory aspect of that, um, where we sort of surround ourselves with people who make us feel good about how we see the world. But also, I think that's happening in a technical sense now uh, with the kind of media that we're exposed to. So there is an issue there. But I think there's something else as well, which is there was a tone of, um, of self-congratulation that didn't that meant that people did not try and engage with what other people were saying mm -hmm. and what their frustrations were. And even if you think people wrong, then I think there's something to be gained from that kind of engagement. And that does speak to a, to a much broader discussion about the role of evidence um, in, in our, and expertise in, in our policymaking process. Um, if we just pick up on, on Facebook there, uh, we know that... Um they have a big problem with fake news, um, it seems, and, and uh, they're talking about how to address that. But when it comes to that sort of tenor of debate, when you have an expert who perhaps does have weighty evidence um, backed up by you know, a methodology, um, and they're trying to argue with someone who feels you know, empowered because they have um, something that they believe is true but perhaps doesn't have you know, the, the, the ability to dissect it in the way the, that, that an expert does. How do you think um, those, those conversations can actually work? Well, just, just at the level of, of 
how we approach them. I truly believe that there are a lot of people around the evidence movement, and I include in that people you know who work for um, for think tanks and and other parts of government as well. Um, who, who are charged with trying to engage people in what they see as the facts. You know, there, are lo- there is a lot that they can learn from the clinician experience because it doesn't mean if we're going to engage with people that we think are misled or misguided or are coming forward with, uh, with something that the facts don't substantiate, it doesn't mean we have to flatter it. Uh, we can argue with it, but, but we, can, we do have to take into account people's experience. I think a good example of that is that, you know, People sometimes come into, into a, um, for example, into a clinical setting uh, with a, a whole load of beliefs about what is working for them. Now, you know, let's say that's a GP situation. The GP has to actually take that on board and deal with it. You can't just keep reading out the information about the prescription you're giving. You actually have to take on board what the person is telling you, even if it's to understand why they might have that impression or why they might be wrong and explain it. And I just don't think that has become the character of our, or that is now the character of our public life. Unfortunately, I think it's become a lot more badge wearing Mm. in that people sort of state where they are and they muster the celebrity and the, you know, the experts have almost been mustered in these recent debates in the same way that celebrities have, uh, just to kind of bolster the we think this um, argument, rather than actually, well, why do other people not think this? Mm. And let's look at whether that challenges what we're saying, or at least we need to explain why their experience might not bear out what we're saying. Now, Centre Post Science was started to, um, in response to, to poor representation of science, um, which is obviously a perennial problem. So it feels like you might have a, a long-term perspective on this. Do you think society is actually changing? That 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 badge wearing, that um, sort of the divide is is growing. We've actually seen um, a real rise in the language of of evidence in public life. So it's quite normal now for people to talk about the evidence behind something, whether that's a youth justice policy or a housing policy, it's really normal for people to talk in those terms. And that's really quite a new thing. Mm. Um, When we started, we asked people to think about whether claims they heard were peer-reviewed, for example. We didn't say that meant it was right or wrong. It's just simply that we can at least find out if something has been subject to scrutiny of peers. People didn't even know that term. In fact, a lot of people thought it meant had it been through the House of Lords because of the use of the word peer. And so now I think we, are, we have almost a much more savvy um, public. A large sections of it are much more savvy about talking about evidence. I think doctors would attest to that too, that um, people obviously are much more sort of Google savvy mm. when it comes to medicine. The thing that um, is frustrating now, and I think a very big worry is that we may see a political response to recent events that aims lower than the public rather than above um, the level of recent discussions. So what I mean by that is we may see people in, in positions of public service and public office thinking that the way to win an election is to do that thing where you write any old rubbish on the side of a bus um, and deal with the aftermath later. That isn't how we want to see people in authority treating the public. And that really worries me, that it can become the new wisdom that the public out there don't care about experts, don't care about evidence, 
and therefore anything goes. Now, I think the principle of truthfulness in all parts of public life is something that we need to to fight for. Mm. It seems to me that post-Brexit, looking at at what's happening in the UK Parliament anyway, uh, the vote has seemed to be an excuse for politicians to try and make it mean whatever they want it to be, uh, whatever's most politically expedient for them at the time. It's sometimes very hard for politicians to talk about the evidence on an issue. It often means that we challenge people's preconceptions um, and make them uncomfortable. So if you take something like uh, the classification of of illegal drugs, Mm. for example, politicians run, run a mile from that discussion. And they are very scared of getting a phone call from from the Daily Mail asking them what they're doing to be tough on drugs. So one of the problems there is that you've already got a bit of cowardice in the discussion and sometimes confusion, too, about how to talk about evidence confidently. What we have now is a situation where that can be blamed back on the public. So the reason why we don't talk about what the evidence tells us, the reason why we uh, don't have policies based on that or we don't discuss it in public is because that's not what people want. And that's the reason, I'm I'm paraphrasing how I think that might go. Mm. That worries me because we already have to fight to get people to be politically brave and give a lead on difficult issues and actually take the time to understand the evidence rather than just provide a knee-jerk response, whether that is to solar power, child abductions, um, uh, NHS provision of Alzheimer's drugs, whatever it is. We we have to really push our politicians not to crowd-please and not to ignore evidence evidence and also to um, sometimes to guide us through it and I think that is going to become easier for them to duck so what we have to do is insist that much harder uh, that the evidence is looked at it's one of the reasons why I think the push for uh, something that sense about science is involved in the push for getting greater transparency about the evidence that's been used to devise policies is something we should all get involved in asking for mm. the way we sort of the way experts are positioned is that it's an expert opinion do you think that's an 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 issue that these things are just becoming opinion versus opinion so some years ago sense about science um got ipsos mori to do a piece of research what we looked at was what do people think scientific means we were really interested in the results because it, it divided the population roughly into four quarters and the the one quarter was able to actually go quite far down the road of explaining how you design a fair test and really you know, got, to, got to grips with the idea of trying to become more objective, uh, trying to make sure that you were ruling out uh, uh, subjective and, and um, biased elements in your research. Then you had the, sort of the middle two quarters who understood that there was something to do with a process of questioning and could name parts of it. And really only um, it was the, the other final uh, uh, quarter who only made associations with things like laboratories and um, scientists, you know, people in white coats mm-hmm, and so on. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty big number of people across society who understand that science is really about the way that you ask questions and asking questions in such a way uh, that is designed to get you as close to the real answer as possible. And I think that is really fertile ground with which we can work 
it really cuts across the idea or cuts away from the idea that experts is this uh, uh, with their very complex science or you know in, in a room somewhere separate from everybody else i think it's a different way of looking at it now as you said um it seems like clinicians might have a uh, uh a kind of head start here um you run a campaigning organization what can people do if they feel that this is a an issue important to them and they want to to actually help mold society well i think the the very first thing we can do is all play a part in getting across to people in positions of authority that this kind of reading this almost sort of cod psychology of the public that's going on as a result of uh, the brexit vote and the, and the trump election um, that this is wrong and it's not telling a lot of the story of how pub the people, members of the public, value certain qualities in public life. We've just taken a group of people to the UK Parliament to talk to ministers and uh, uh, MPs and peers about the way that evidence is used in their own lives. We had a housing officer from Glasgow talking about the Glasgow effect and the importance of, of evidence in understanding how to address that uh, mortality rate in yeah. Glasgow. And so we had people, teachers, talking about the need for evidence in the classroom. And you could see that the politicians in the room were really woken up by that and that they had found this idea of the public being hostile quite beguiling, and this was quite a counterpoint. So I think everyone needs to start thinking, whether it's through their own MPs and other work that they do, how they can represent that public hunger for evidence and for answers and accountability. Mm. And Tracy's editorial, Evidence, Expertise and Facts in a Post-Truth Society, is now available on the bmj.com and in your Christmas edition. Tracy was talking about the need for experts to foster mutual understanding with politicians and the public. But our next author thinks that experts, and particularly epidemiologists, need to foster better understanding with each other. Anders Huitfeld is a postdoctoral scholar at Stanford University School of Medicine and has been trying to puzzle out, is caviar a risk factor for being a millionaire? He talks to Navjot Lada about his investigations. And how did you um, come up with this idea? I was uh, flying home from Boston to Norway and I had a layover at Heathrow and the, um, uh, the, the ongoing flight was late, was several hours late, so they gave me a... Um, they gave me a ten dollar meal uh, meal coupon, which I uh, which I didn't really want. I'd already eaten at that stage, and I was kind of pissed at the, the airline. Um, so I decided to use that in the most extravagant way I can think of, and it <laughs> that being this this tiny, tiny spoon of very fine caviar um, from one of those um, seafood uh, what do you call them? Those uh, raw bars. At yeah. The uh, and uh, yeah, I got a little bit addicted to that stuff, and uh, that got me thinking about caviar. But more seriously, the answer to why I wrote this is I spent five years in the epidemiology department at Harvard, and I I felt we had a lot of misunderstandings with the people working on apl applications. Uh, a lot of them felt they didn't need methods for causality, and they kind of didn't understand why we thought it was necessary that they had to listen to our methodological work. So when I was reading a lot of the papers that came out of the um, 
the kind of applied work in epidemiology, it seemed that they were all terrified of claiming that their results had anything to do with causality. That was, if they made a claim about causality, uh, they knew they couldn't defend it. So they wanted, they tried very hard to avoid being seen to make such claims. And one of the strategies that I noticed in a lot of the papers was that they claimed that they were not doing a causal analysis, they were doing something they called a prediction model. Mm-hmm. Now, prediction models are great if what you're trying to learn about is uh, uh, you're trying to, to learn about how you can reduce prognostic or diagnostic uncertainty. But if, if you're trying to learn about risk factors and you say, I'm going to fit a prediction model instead of a causal model, you've kind of redefined what you're trying to do. So if that's the strategy you adapt, you've changed the meaning of the research question. And a lot of the time I saw them jumping back again to another meaning by the end of the paper in that they were saying, okay, we've fit this prediction model, we've shown that X is the risk factor for Y, and now politicians should try and reduce X so that we don't get Y. Then we're back to the causal meaning, but that's not what they studied. They just studied predictions. Right. In the paper, you explain this using an example of caviar. Can you talk us through that now? The idea is that I first uh, try to study the question of whether caviar um, is something that uh, that I can use to tell whether my friend is a millionaire, whether when I watch him eat caviar, it tells me anything about whether he's rich or not. And I conclude then that yeah, if I see someone eat caviar, that probably means they're rich. Um, I then move on to studying whether it means that they will become rich in the future if I'm talking to someone who's not rich right now. And in the fictional studies that I do, I see that it doesn't really tell me anything about whether they will become rich in the future, which is kind of similar to uh, how you would think about prognosis in a clinical setting. Uh, or And also very similar to how insurance companies will think about how they will price your life insurance. That's the kind of information you need. It's not information about causality. It's information about whether it gives you reliable information about what will happen in the future. So after concluding that it doesn't really tell you anything about what will happen in the future, I try and ask the question about whether it has any effect in the sense that whether if I start eating caviar, I'll become rich. Uh, and I conclude that that's certainly not true, that, uh, <laughs> that I will become very poor if I, eat, uh, if I keep eating all of this caviar. And then I start asking questions about if I study people who became, lit, uh, became millionaires, was it because they ate caviar? And that's a very difficult question to answer because the statistics are, um, we don't have the methodology to answer to answer those questions without making very strong assumptions. Uh, there's a lot of methodological controversy about what it even means to ask etiological questions like that with statistical methods. And actually, um, when I showed the paper to other methodologists, this was the, this was what we got into a lot of discussions about. And hopefully one of the effects of the paper might be that we get into a conversation about how we can make better statistical methods for studying studying etiology. Um, it's very different from studying treatment effects, where the methodology is established and uh, and very clear. 
the methodology for ideology is just a complete mess and we need to get the methodologists together and think about how, what we can do about that. Mm-hmm. So what um, your example very neatly demonstrates, uh, and as you explained in the paper, is that you can consider these types of studies to be asked, looking at four different kind of areas, if you like, and how you interpret the meaning of risk factor depends on what the research question is and what exactly you're trying to study. You go on to sort of talk about, well, what needs to happen? Who needs to sort of act on this? I, I suppose it's the, the researchers and perhaps enforced by journals. That that was your suggestion. Yeah, I think eventually the only, the only way this gets solved is if we change the way we teach basic epidemiology in, in grad school and in medical school. But as a first step towards motivating people to do that, editors need to ask authors to be very clear about what their research question is and not allow them to let their research questions be unspecified by using a word that has two potential meanings where both of those meanings are used in different parts of the paper. Yeah, as editors, I think we think about language a lot, trying to be as clear as possible. But as you said, there are several meanings for the phrase risk factors. How much do you think this is a language issue and how much a conceptual one? I'm sure both of those things you mentioned are... um, are real problems and it's difficult to disentangle them. I think someone has written very well about problem of muddy concepts due to due to these linguistic issues is Eliezer Yudkowsky and I very much recommend reading his writing on this, uh, which I which there's a reference to in the uh, in the paper itself. He has this fantastic sequence of blog posts that was re- that was um, uh, later made into a book called The Human's Guide to Words. Uh, where he very clearly shows what it does to your ability to analyze the situation correctly when you're using concepts that are not natural concepts and which are, in fact, combinations of, uh, of two different things. Some Christmas reading for you there. If you want some concrete examples of the problem of language, read our research paper, Nominal Isomers, Incorrect spellings of medicines eluding researchers, variants in the spellings of drug names in PubMed, a database review. Or as we say, who can even spell drug names anyway? That's all for this podcast on truth. Our next one will be on war. An ethicist thunders about the apparent deconstruction of the rules of war. And we'll hear about how stories from the past echo even more strongly today. If you've not done so already, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find our full back catalogue on SoundCloud, including the other BMJ Christmas 2016 podcasts and all of our Christmases past. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.